Psychologist Patricia Dalton says that uh, rampant consumerism, once pretty much confined to the holidays, the Christmas time and right after that, has become a year-round American affliction. She observes, observes that unhappy people trying to fill the emptiness of their lives by all of that spending at Christmas time in particular, end up consulting psychologists like her to figure out what has gone wrong in their lives. Those of us who lived through the 60s, she says, seem to have forgotten the warning that everything you buy owns you in some way. To pay off pay for all their stuff. People now work so hard, she says, that they're ruining their marriages, their families, their health. No wonder people feel empty and unsatisfied with their lives. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, where we pick up this morning, warns us that discontentment ruins our lives. And we try to fill that need in so many ways. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking, you know, that if we just had this thing, or we were able to achieve this particular goal, that we will be satisfied in life, that we will find fulfillment and contentment. In fact, as Solomon repeatedly teaches us, our appetites grow with our success so that we're never really satisfied. And the result is that we are always discontented if we're looking for the solutions around us on this earth. There is always something else we want, something else we think will meet our needs. Now Solomon had it all, wealthy, powerful, he had everything he could want. And he had seen those who had it all lose it all. And he says, first of all, in Ecclesiastes 6, that losing it all proves how meaningless things are. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Solomon writes, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, but God has not empowered him, enabled him to eat from them, to enjoy them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. This is emptiness and a severe affliction, misery for his life. The word translated evil there at the outset of verse 6 is one of the favorite words that Solomon uses in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the Hebrew word certainly can mean moral wrong, wickedness, evil in that sense. But that's not normally the way Solomon uses it throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the word is used mostly to describe tragedy or calamity, or misfortune that comes upon people. So Solomon here is reflecting on a situation that he has observed in life. 
And he reflects on a serious tragedy, a misfortune that, ha- that he has observed in, in his life. And this disaster is seen when a man, or a woman for that matter, whom God has given everything, riches, wealth, honor, position, everything that that person's soul could possibly want, this person has. And this man or woman never gets any enjoyment or satisfaction out of those things, those possessions. Because some disaster takes place and others end up enjoying all of the things that he had. This man was so focused then on all the things he was accumulating, the stuff of this life, that he missed out on enjoying. He, he did not have God's enablement to enjoy all of those things. He wasn't relying on God. He was just constantly accumulating. Perhaps, I mean, we can surmise that this man thought that someday, later, he would enjoy some of these things, but later never comes for this man. He was blessed by God with everything he could possibly want, But he never enjoyed or appreciated what God gave to him. And then misfortune struck. We don't know what that is, but some calamity struck him and his life, and he lost it all, and others ended up enjoying what he never did appreciate. And Solomon said, when you look at that kind of a scenario, he said, I've seen it in life, we see it in life. He said, when you look at that kind of a scenario then you realize that this kind of life is meaningless. It's empty. It's futile. You know what? If there was ever a country and an age that God has blessed, it is America in the 21st century. Is that not true? I mean, it's incredible what God has blessed us with in terms of material possessions, in terms of the comforts of this life. We are truly a blessed people. Every day, Americans buy an average, get this, of 3,972,603 movie tickets, 1,683,835 songs and albums that they buy online from various sources, 1,653,000, 1,650,000 DVD rentals from Netflix, 978,030 bags of Orville Redenbacher's gourmet popcorn, every day now, Americans buy, 568,764 Titleist golf balls. If I was golfing, it'd be a lot higher, you know. <laughs> Lose them all, right? Well, I could buy a lot of golf balls. 443,650 large french fries at Burger King every day. 7,500 Samsung LCD TVs are bought every day. 60 Ford Mustangs on eBay are bought every day by Americans. That's a lot of stuff. Our consumption is amazing in this country. God has given us so much. But are we satisfied? Do you think this nation is a contented nation? No, it isn't. 
Do we enjoy what God has given to us? Do we thank God daily for His blessings? I think most often we tend to take them all for granted. Our appetites never seem to be satisfied. Now, verses like these should give us pause to think. God could take it all away, couldn't he? He could. Our economy is like a house of cards. Take a few cards away and everything comes crashing down and nobody has anything. We could lose all the stuff, all the things that people think are so important in life. How would we react, do you think? The truth is, for most of us, I mean, you've experienced this too, when, whenever you lose out on something, you know, you get frustrated, right? <laughs> Angry, resentment, and it, it might be little things that we lose out on. We lash out. I mean, we deserve better. That's the motto of our country, isn't it? In February 2009, a year ago, a 27-year-old woman from Fort Pierce, Florida, walked into a McDonald's restaurant. She ordered a 10-piece McNuggets meal. The person behind the counter took the order, received the payment. The McDonald's employee then discovered that they were out of all of their McNuggets in that particular McDonald's. The employee told the customer that the restaurant had run out of McNuggets and she would have to get something else from the menu. She could pick anything. It could be a lot, anything that cost a lot more, but she had to pick something else from the menu. Well, she didn't want anything else. She wanted McNuggets, not a Big Mac or McRib, McRib or Quarter Pounder or anything else. She wanted McNuggets. And so she was angry and she asked if she could have her money back. And the employee said, well, it was the policy of McDonald's that, that, they, that all orders were final, and she couldn't have her money back, but she could take anything else, cost more, whatever, she could have it. She didn't want that. She was angry. So this was an emergency as far as she was concerned, so she did what you do in emergencies. She dialed 911 <laughs> to complain. Apparently, the 911 dispatch didn't think much of the complaint and didn't do anything about it. So she ended up dialing 911 three times to complain about McDonald's and the fact that she didn't have her McNuggets. She never did get her McNuggets that night, but she did later get a ticket from the police for misusing 911. I mean, anger and frustration make mountains out of molehills. And how often do we do that? I mean, when we're angry, having to eat a burger instead of McNuggets is a disaster. That's not really a disaster, is it? It's not even a disaster if you had to walk away from a few bucks. But it is when we're angry about it. That is a self-centered and destructive way to live, is it not? Solomon warns us, secondly that living that is never satisfied is worse than never living at all. Verse 3. 
If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility, it goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the Man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things. Do not all go to the same place. In the Hebrew mind, there were several proofs of God's blessing in your life. You knew you were blessed by God in the Hebrew mind if some of these things took place. The proofs of God's blessing. The first proof of God's blessing was that you would live a long life. The second proof is you'd have lots of children. And the third proof is you would have an honorable burial. These were, to the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew way of thinking, these were proofs of God's blessing to you. Now Solomon does a little hyperbolizing here. This is deliberate exaggeration to make a point. He deliberately exaggerates the blessing all out of impossible proportions here in order to make his point. He says, suppose hypothetically there was a man who lived a long life. In fact, he lived a thousand years twice over. That's 2,000 years this guy lives. It's an impossible life. He is blessed beyond all comparison. And he fathers a hundred children. Wow, this guy is really blessed. But he never enjoys anything in life. He never appreciates what God has given to him. He's never satisfied. And he's so miserable that when he dies, he doesn't even get a proper burial. Here was a man who was never satisfied in life, so he was given no satisfaction in death either. And then Solomon makes his point. A stillborn child is better off than this man. The stillborn child, he says, enters the world in futility, goes into darkness, and darkness obscures that child's identity. This child never sees the sun, never enjoys the life that we have here on this earth. This is a Horrible tragedy. A stillborn child is a horrible tragedy by all our expectations of life. There are few pains more painful than a stillborn child to parents. It's a horrible tragedy. Here's a child that had all of this human potential and never was able to realize any of that potential. The baby's life was cut short before it was born. Now do you see the incredible comparison he's making? This man who is blessed beyond all human comparison. And a child with all that potential that never ever even got to enjoy life. That child, he says, is way better off than that man. The man who lived an unsatisfied life is worse than the baby that never lived at all on this earth. Why? 
Well, he says, because the baby found rest in God, and the man never did. Never found his rest in God, but the baby did. The baby found rest in God. And then he says, when we die, we all go to the same place, the, the man and the baby. But the baby found rest in God in that grave. And the man never had any rest in God. So the baby's way better off. By the way, just an aside here before we continue, and it's not part of his argument here in Ecclesiastes, but a comment on this verse in the light of abortion and the whole issue in our society, right? Here is another indicator in Scripture that God values the life of an unborn child. This unborn child is viewed as a person who finds rest in God and ends up in the same place that any of us end up who find our rest in God. Parents who experience a stillbirth can take comfort in the fact that God gives rest to that stillborn child. He or she is valuable to God. And that ought to teach us as Christians to value all unborn children in this world. In fact, he says, the unborn child is better off than the man that never, or the woman that never finds rest in God, never appreciates God, never is satisfied with God, and never finds rest for his or her soul. Living that is never satisfied is worse than never living at all, is his point. We all need to learn to appreciate and enjoy God's blessings to us while we have them. God intended that we, every one of us, live satisfied, live fulfilled lives. Not with the stuff of this world, but with him. To appreciate and enjoy God's blessings and find our fulfillment in Him instead of wishing for what we don't have in this world. Life may not always seem like it gets better and better and we get more and more, but we need to take from the hand of God what He gives to us and be satisfied with it. Marshall Shelley, editor of Leadership Journal, tells about his wife's farmer, his, his wife's father, who was a Kansas farmer all of his life. And one morning while Marshall followed him around the family farm and he was spending time with his father-in-law and enjoying the chores and all of that, they talked about the differences between city living and uh, rural lifestyle, farm living. And his father-in-law said, most city folks I know expect each year to be better than the last. They think it's normal to get an annual raise to earn more this year than you did last year. As a farmer, I have good years and I have bad years. It all depends on the rain at the right time, dry days for harvest and no damaging storms. Some years we have more, some years we have less. That's the law of the harvest. Marshall Shelley said, he thought about that and he thought, that is a wonderful lesson for all of us. Have we learned the law of the harvest? <laughs> or do we always expect life to get better and better and better? Can we take from the hand of God in the seasons of plenty 
and the seasons of less. And be satisfied either way. That's the law of the harvest. And it's the principle that God teaches us through Ecclesiastes. That we should find our satisfaction and take from the hand of God what he gives us. Each day, each year. And perhaps, perhaps farmers, as much as anybody, have learned to take from the hand of God and appreciate the seasons of more and the seasons of less. It's a great lesson for all of us. Because living that is never satisfied is worse than never living at all. Third principle. Wanting more means enjoying less. Verse 9. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. This, too, is futility and striving after wind. The proverb in verse 7 is really a proverb that describes the reality of human nature. Humans work hard to put food in their mouths. That's life. But our appetites are never satisfied. And that's one of the frustrations of life. We have to work hard to live. Well, most of us have to work hard to live. Doesn't, he's talking generalities here, obviously. Some people get handed things on a silver platter. But most of us have to work hard to live, to feed ourselves. But human nature always wants more. The insatiable appetite is part of human nature. We're not satisfied. Now, there are benefits to this appetite in humans. It's often what drives us to get ahead in life. The work ethic is often a product of the appetite for more. We, we usually applaud that kind of work ethic. You know, you work hard so you can have more. But the downside is that we are never satisfied no matter how hard we work to get ahead. And so we end up with the groanings of a greedy heart. We want more. And Solomon tells us in verse 8 that neither the wise man nor the foolish man has an advantage over the other in this regard because it's part of human nature is his point. In the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Psalms, all of that wisdom literature, the wise man is sort of a metaphor. It's constantly used throughout the wisdom literature for a man who is successful in life. He's hardworking, he's effective, he gets ahead, he's successful, he makes good decisions, that's the wise man. And the foolish man, throughout the wisdom literature, the foolish man is the lazy man, the guy who doesn't work hard, doesn't try, doesn't get ahead in life. So he says, look, Neither the wise man, the guy who is successful and works hard and makes good decisions in life, nor the foolish man, the lazy guy who just can't bother with anything, neither one of them 
are any different than the other in this regard. Why? Because it's part of human nature. The sin nature in man has this appetite. We want more. It's part of who humans are having fallen in sin. So it doesn't matter whether you're wise or you're foolish, there is this appetite inside of us. The same is true of the rich man and the poor man, he says. The rich man, no matter how much he has, wants more. And the poor man, no matter how well he tries to get along in life, has this appetite for more as well. See, greed is not an issue of how much you have. Poor people can be very greedy. And rich people can be very greedy. And at the same time, rich people can be not greedy and filled with gratitude. It's not necessarily how much you have that makes us greedy. It's our attitude about what we have that makes us greedy or not greedy. So the rich or the poor, they're built the same way. And we have to deal with that reality. It is part of our human nature. Now, verse 9 gives a solution in a proverb again. Whether you're wise or foolish, whether you're rich or poor, the solution is to be content with what you have rather than striving for what you don't have. So he puts it this way, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetites. It's a proverb. That's the English Standard Version translation, by the way, of this verse. I'd put it like this. Better to enjoy what you see than dream about what you want. The dreams end up being unsatisfying. It's better to enjoy the house you own than dream about the mansion you'd like to own. It's better to be content with the Chevy you have than to dream about the Porsche you'd like to have. It's better to appreciate the job you do than dream about the job you wish you had. It's better to be happy with what you can see before your eyes, for God has given it to you, than to dream about all the things you'd like to have in life. Why? Because that produces discontentment, does it not? The way to find contentment in life Because no matter how hard we work or how much we own, our appetites never seem to be satisfied. The way to find contentment is to appreciate what we see, what we have, instead of wishing for what we didn't have. We have to start by appreciating what God gives us. Rick Field is a 41-year-old bachelor with degrees from Andover and Yale, And he's decided in life that making pickles is what he's going to do with his life. The career change came after he lost his job producing a national public radio program. He says when people ask him what he does for work, he says people will come up to me and say, so what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a pickler. And they say, but I mean, like, what do you really do for, for work? <laughs> no, I'm a pickler. He uh, began pickling as a hobby. 
immersing cucumbers and cauliflower and string beans and other vegetables in experimental brines infused with ingredients like rosemary and wasabi or curry. One of the inventions now in his line is a sliced bread and butter pickle called B&B's that drives its sweetness not from sugar but from coconut, dried cherries and ginger. Ooh. (laughs) There's some pickle lovers out here. At the International Pickle Festival, Field has won Best Show ten times in the country. The first was for his Windy City Wasabean, a string bean incubated in a brine flavored with soy and wasabi. No ooze on that one. All right. I don't even know what that would taste like. But one of his failures, one of his failures was um, when he tried to do a fiery pickle, hot pickle, and he used African bird's eye chilies. They were awfully required, what I, he recalled, and what I wound up with were two cases of paperweights. <laughs> Nobody wanted to eat them. <laughs> Doesn't sound too good to me. All right. Giving his perspective on pickles, here's the point. See, this is, Ecclesiastes is all about a philosophy of life. How do you live? And here's his perspective on pickles. The world is incredibly crazy and complicated, and at some point I started to feel as if there was something very satisfying about putting something in a jar, looking at it, closing it, tucking away, watching it, giving it to someone, and moving on. That's not a bad philosophy of life. I suspect the gardeners out here know that philosophy. My wife's the gardener in our family. Uh, I'm not. But there's something really satisfying about that vegetable garden and the canning in the fall and putting it all on the shelves. It's satisfying. Simple, but satisfying. That's Ecclesiastes' point. Have you found in life those things that are satisfying? What you see with your eyes, do with your hands. Those finished tasks. You know, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why so much, so many times we are frustrated with life, I think in my own life, is because there's so much unfinished business all the time, right? I mean, no matter what you do, it seems like there's unfinished business. And it's frustrating and unsatisfying. So there's something very satisfying about a task that finishes, right, in life. And Solomon says, learn. Learn to be satisfied with what you see instead of your wandering appetites that are always going after unfinished business. It's a good philosophy. Fourth principle. Arguing with God is an exercise of futility. Heard at least one amen on that. Verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? 
Whatever has come to be in life, Solomon says, has already been named in the past. Whatever man is, has already been known. There is no sense arguing with the one who is stronger than we are because we will always lose that argument. Now, Solomon is clearly talking about fighting with God about life here. For God is the one who knows the life of man. God is the one who knows the future and God is the one who is stronger than we are. And you have to remember Solomon's conclusion, right? You always have to read Ecclesiastes in the light of the conclusion, right? At the end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 13, what's his conclusion? Fear God and obey his commandments. <laughs> Don't fight God, because God's stronger than we are. And God knows all the answers. God is sovereign. God is in charge. Nothing happens that is outside of God's control. The New Living Bible paraphrases the verse this way, and it's, I think it's helpful to put it in language. It's a paraphrase, but it's helpful to put it in our language. Everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. You say, well, Dave, that's fatalism. If everything is preordained and I'm doomed to do whatever God has decided, then why bother to live? Why, do, why bother to make any choices in life? No, this is not fatalism. The Bible does not teach fatalism. But it is a mystery. And we do not entirely understand how our choices and God's sovereignty work out in life. It's a mystery. We do not fully comprehend. God is sovereign, though. And we are still responsible to make decisions. And God is so sovereign that he can weave my choices into his plan. And God is so powerful that he can influence my choices to fulfill his plan. And yet my choices are still my choices. It's a mystery to me how that all works out. Think of it this way. God knows what will happen to me next week. Because God knew what kind of person I would be long before I was even born into this world. Therefore, what will happen next week has already been decided. It is preordained. I will make choices next week, however. And those choices are my choices. But those choices are not made in a vacuum. My choices are influenced by God, for one. Family, circumstances, my own personality. Who knows me better than myself? God. I can't fake God out. You say, well, what, what happens next week if you decide to do something different? You think that faked God out? I don't think so. He already knew in advance. I cannot make a choice he did not already factor in when planning next week. It wasn't like he goes, Whoa, Dave! Where did that come from? That's not God. If God already knew what would happen next week, then in practical terms, the kind that we have to live in day by day, the events of next week are already predetermined. So, 
There's absolutely no sense arguing with God. (laughs) That's Solomon's point. The more words he says we use to fight God, who's stronger than we are, the more futile our battle becomes. God is the master persuader. God is the chess master. (laughs) And no matter what move I make, he's got a counter move. God will win. I can never win a battle with God. And neither can you. I love the email that John Jorgensen sent out this week. I told him I was going to use this in a sermon. So It's a great email. Because, you know, Awana had to be canceled again on Tuesday night because of the snowstorm. And here's the email that, that was sent out by John. Our dear Lord has decided that Tuesday would be a great day for a snowstorm. Not willing to fight his will, Awana is canceled for tonight. (laughs) It's good theology. Real good theology. And we'd all be better off to learn now that fighting God never works. Have you ever fought God and won? I've fought God a few times in my life. When I didn't want to do something, I've never yet won. It just is an exercise of futility. It doesn't work. We always lose. Notice verse 12 here. He says, who knows what is good for man during his lifetime? What's the answer? I mean, he doesn't answer it here, but what's the answer at the end of the book? God. God's the one who knows what is best for me in my lifetime. Our lives, he says, pass like shadows. In our short lives, they're gone. But God knows better than we do what is good for us in his sovereign plan. So arguing with God is an exercise of futility. It makes no sense. In his book, The Many Faces of Evil, author John Feinberg tells a story of when his wife, Pat, was diagnosed with Huntington's chorea. That's a genetically transmitted disease that causes deterioration in the brain, thus causing physical and physiological and psychological debilitation to the person slowly over time. John and Pat, when they found out, were not only concerned about their future, but they were concerned about the future of their children because Huntington's chorea is a genetically transmitted disease and 50% of your children will have it too. And so here they were with three boys and they wondered about their lives too. And they wondered why they hadn't been warned. Soon after the diagnosis, they requested a copy of Pat's mother's medical chart to see if there was any family history of the disease. Guess what? She had had the disease many years earlier, and it was kept a secret from everyone. It was in her private medical chart. And John said he was angry. He was angry, not just with people, but with God. Why? This was all known. 20, 30 years ago this was known. How come we didn't know so I could make informed decisions about whether to marry Pat, whether to have children? 
God, what, what, what's with you, God? It was known, it was set, it was preordained at that point, right? I mean, he couldn't do anything about it. Nobody could change it. But Feinberg writes of his realization that the hidden knowledge was actually a gift of grace from God. He writes, For 20 years that information had been there, and at any time we could have found it out. Why then did God not give it to us until 1987, long after there was anything we could do about it? As I wrestled with that question, I began to see his love and concern for us. God kept it hidden because he wanted me to marry Pat, who is a wonderful wife. My life would be impoverished without her, and I would have missed the blessings of being married to her had I known earlier and chosen differently. God wanted our three sons to be born. Each is a blessing and a treasure, but we would have missed that had we known earlier. And God knew that we needed to be in a community of brothers and sisters in Christ at church and at the seminary who would love us and care for us at this darkest hour. And so God withheld that information, not because he accidentally overlooked giving it to us, not because he is an uncaring God who delights in seeing his children suffer. He withheld it as a sign of his great care for us. There is never a good time to receive such news, but God knew that this was exactly the right time. Hmm. That's when all of this stuff gets down to real life, doesn't it? Whatever comes to be, Solomon says, has already been named by God. And he didn't forewarn us. God knew it all along. Whatever you face next week, God already knew it. John Feinberg couldn't change the reality, and God did not want him to change his choices. So we might as well stop fighting God and accept his will for our lives and find satisfaction in him. Trust the Lord for your present and your future because he's covered your past. Oswald Chambers wrote this great advice for all of us. The man or woman who does not know God demands an infinite satisfaction from other human beings which they cannot give. And in the case of the man, he becomes tyrannical and cruel. It springs from this one thing. The human heart must have satisfaction. But there is only one being who can satisfy the last abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, The stuff we face in life is not a surprise to you. The heartaches, the choices that others make that affect us, the health issues, even our own choices. We know that you knew those things all along. And while you don't forewarn us, you are there with us. Help us to find our greatest satisfaction, our only real, true satisfaction in you through Jesus Christ, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.